Well, good morning. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Brock, and I am thrilled that you are a part of our services today. Whether you're here in the room or you're joining online in the virtual campus, it is our joy to be able to share this time with you. And as we kick off uh, the message this morning, I want to take a moment to express my gratitude to our worship team and particularly to Trevor Chadwick. Many of you know that our uh, worship minister, Mateo Coronado, usually is the guy that's standing up here front and center, but Mateo woke up feeling sick this morning and couldn't be here, and so the team called an audible and worked together to do all of the heavy lifting that Mateo normally does, and so we would love for you to pray for Mateo today, but also uh, let's express our gratitude to the team uh, who works hard to be able to lead our hearts in worship. If today is your first time with us or your first time in a while, I want to be able to fill you in on what we've been studying and talking about together this summer. We've been in this series of messages that we have called Vivid, and what we're talking about together is the common human quest, or some people might call it the common human struggle, to recognize what God is up to in our lives and in our world. It is one thing to believe that God exists, and that's a really crucial stage on the faith journey, but understanding that God is active and involved with our lives, well, that's a whole nother step altogether. And there are lots of believers who go for years, some of them for their entire lives, wishing that they could perceive God's presence in a more tangible way. In fact, a few times during this series, I've referenced a famous poem that you've probably seen before that's called Footprints in the Sand. And it's this poem about a person who's reflecting on their timeline of their life and their walk with God and they're noticing that there were some moments in their history that were particularly hard when they had a hard time discerning whether God showed up and acted at all. And the poem resonates with readers so much because we all have this universal curiosity about how God is involved, about whether God is involved, and particularly on life's most difficult days. You see, in this poem, the author makes the classic mistake of failing to recognize God's interventions. This writer looks back on the most difficult seasons of their life and they assume that in those moments, part of the reason those seasons were hard is because God had abandoned them during those times. And the truth is, the truth that is revealed at the end of the poem is that God was the one who was carrying them during those seasons and bringing them out on the other side. And it seems to be the ever-present struggle that when mortals try to understand the immortal, when we try as created beings to relate to and comprehend the Creator, we run into our own limitations. But part of what we're discovering together in this series of messages is that look, just simply looking at our life's circumstances and trying to develop our own hypotheses about God's involvement well, that's not a reliable method. That's not the way to discern what God is up to, but that doesn't mean that our hands 
or tied. In fact, we're discovering in this series that God has actually provided and laid out a path, a set of practices that make it possible for earthly beings to connect with the eternal being. The trouble, though, is that some of these practices are easier said than done. This week I was on the phone with a friend who was telling me that recently he's gotten involved in teaching driver's education classes. And when he said it, my mind was immediately flooded with memories of what it was like when I learned to drive myself. Maybe you're a young person here who hasn't been through that process yet, or maybe you're one of the many people whose parents taught you to drive in the family car. But for me, driver's ed happened back in the mid-1990s in this trailer outside my high school on evenings after school was over. And it started for a couple of weeks, as I recall, with classroom training and we were going over all the rules of the road and reading page by page as a class through the Texas, you know, driver's education book or whatever you call that thing. And we were studying all of those state materials so that we could take a test and qualify for our learner's permits. And then after that was done, we spent quite a few evenings together in these simple little simulators that were very primitive by today's standards. It was just a chair with a, a steering wheel and a couple of pedals, but we would watch footage of driving up on a big screen in the front of the room, and the instructor could tell with a sensor in the back if we were pushing the brake at the right time or pushing the gas at the right time. And then when we graduated from simulator training, well, you know what happened after that. We went on to the main event, right? And this was driving around town with an instructor and a couple of other students from the class in a car that had this gargantuan sign up on the roof that let everybody know that you had no idea what you were doing, right? I mean, it was the sign that said, student driver, please keep your distance, please beware, or get in the way and mess with me a little bit. You know, I don't know how people react to that. But looking back on that, I think, I'm thinking to myself that a driver's education instructor, that's got to be one of the most nerve-wracking jobs on the planet, right? I mean, nobody likes riding with a bad driver, but it has got to raise your blood pressure just a little bit when you spend day after day riding around with kids whose driving ability is a total question mark. Nobody knows how they're going to handle this. They have never been behind the wheel before. And the only saving grace, some of you know where I'm going with this, the only saving grace that makes that stress manageable for those driving instructors and probably saves countless lives is that the driver's ed car has an extra feature that doesn't come standard, right? The driver's ed car has an additional brake pedal over on the floorboard on the passenger side. And because of that brake pedal, those instructors are able to look danger right in the eye, right? I mean, they can just, I mean, boldly go forward with the confidence and the knowledge that in the end, they will be able to control the vehicle's speed. And even if things go south, even if this kid turns out to have no idea what they're doing and things get really out of hand with that student driver, the, the instructor is going to have ultimate control over when that vehicle stops, right? This was the genius of the driver's ed car. No matter where the student tried to drive, 
no matter how fast the student tried to go, no matter who the student tried to turn in front of, ultimately the student was not in control of the vehicle because the instructor has an override pedal. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't sign up for that job without the override pedal. I just wouldn't do it. You couldn't pay me enough. You couldn't put me in that situation without the ability to take back control. In fact, for most of us, we really like the feeling of being in control. For most of us, the feeling of being in control is one of the best feelings. It's one of the most reassuring feelings that there is. Even if you're somebody who doesn't like to drive, we all love the proverbial feeling of being in the driver's seat, don't we? We like to call our own shots. We like to make our own decisions. We like to determine our own destiny. We like it when we get to be in charge. But when it comes to connecting with God, when it comes to connecting with God, our hunger for control can actually stand in the way of relationship. When it comes to having a connection between the mortal and the immortal, when it comes to having a connection between the earthly and the eternal, the desire on behalf of the mortal, earthly, created beings to be in charge can actually create a roadblock. When it comes to following Jesus, our passion for power is not a strength and it's not an asset, it's a liability in this equation. In fact, being in charge and calling the shots is entirely contradictory to the Christian life. Being in charge is not what we're here to do. And the truth is that trying to maintain control and have things your way that may be the barrier to real breakthrough in your spiritual walk. But breaking through this barrier is not easy. Breaking through this barrier is not easy because giving up control, wow, that's one of those things we really don't like to do. And it's one of the themes that comes up over and over throughout all of the pages of the Bible. But even though we have so much reference about it and so much instruction about it and so much teaching about it, giving up control really is easier said than done. And part of our struggle, part of our challenge as we try to engage an ancient text and use it to teach us about the Christian life, part of our struggle stems from the fact that when the biblical writers talked about giving up control, they used a term that is very unpopular in our culture. The biblical writers, when they talked about giving up control, they talked about the spiritual discipline of submission. I don't like that word either, right? Some of you thought, oh boy. If you've been around church for any length of time at all, you're very justified in having that reaction. If you've been around church for any length of time at all, you probably already know, I don't have to tell you, that throughout our history, submission has been weaponized. And submission has been utilized to control people in the history of the church. And it's been used in ways that were anything but Christ-like. You probably know 
that in too many cases, church leaders and biblical scholars preached submission to people who were enslaved. And they told them that it was their duty as Christians to simply comply and allow slave owners to treat them as property and not as human beings. You probably know that in too many cases in our history, church leaders, particularly male church leaders, have preached submission to married women, telling them that it was their duty as Christians to submit to their husband no matter what abuse or no matter what neglect they were enduring. You probably already know that these leaders were armed with biblical texts that do indeed instruct and invite slaves and wives to practice submission. But what we didn't say, what we failed to mention, was the rest of the story. Those church leaders misapplied and mishandled God's written word because they neglected the parallel passages that invited husbands and slave owners to be submissive to. They neglected the passages and the greater themes found in our scriptures that invite everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ to submit to others. They neglected passages like Ephesians 5.21 where Paul instructs all the Christians at Ephesus to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. They neglected the passages like Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, where Paul told all the Christians at Philippi, be humble and think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. They neglected passages like 1 Peter chapter 5, where Paul, or Peter, excuse me, Peter told all his Christian readers, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, submission, submission is not a discipline that is required of just one particular person or group of persons because of their gender, their class, their age, or their situation. Submission is a challenge that's issued to all Christians. Submission is an invitation to willingly and voluntarily give up control of our lives. And ironically, ironically, the people who already have the most power in our culture and in historic cultures, the people who have been given respect and status and prestige and power on the basis of their gender or their race or their wealth or their societal position. Ironically, people like that face the greatest challenge when they're invited to practice the discipline of submission because powerful people have more control to surrender. We have more to give up when we're powerful. And I want to tell you this morning that even though Jesus never actually used the word submit in any of the recorded quotations and teachings that we have of his, Jesus taught this discipline as central to the Christian 
life. I want to show you one passage this morning, and it's a a particular passage found in Mark chapter 8. We're going to put these verses up here on the screen, but if you want to turn your Bible on or open your Bible up and follow along with us, you'll find Mark in the second spot in the New Testament portion of your Bible. And you need to know that Mark was a missionary, and Mark was a close friend to some of Jesus' closest friends, people like Paul and Peter and Barnabas. And Mark wrote down a succinct version of the story of Jesus' life so that people in later generations could become disciples too. And we call this account the Gospel of Mark or the Book of Mark. That's what we're reading today. And as the drama of Jesus' life was unfolding, by the time we get to Mark chapter 8 in the record of the story, Jesus had demonstrated over and over again his spiritual power over nature, over evil, over illness. Jesus kept demonstrating power such that the disciples who were closest to him started to recognize him as something special. The disciples who were closest to Jesus started to recognize that he was showing all the signs of being God's chosen one. But almost immediately after they came to that realization, Jesus started sharing a narrative with them that for them it didn't fit. Immediately after they came to recognize who Jesus was, Jesus started talking about his future, the destiny that he had planned and accepted for himself, the future that was going to lead to his arrest and his eventual execution at the hands of the Roman government and the Jewish religious establishment of his day. And his disciples, these people who had suddenly become convinced and convicted about his divine identity, his disciples were confused because that didn't sound like any kind of a future for God's anointed one. That didn't sound like the kind of future that you ought to have if you had the power that Jesus possessed. If you were somebody that had that kind of power, that kind of status, that kind of ability, you shouldn't have to be subject to that kind of mistreatment, at least in their estimation. But in chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, Mark chapter 8, Jesus explained that not only was this what his future held, but that this kind of submission was also going to be the way of life for anybody that wanted to follow him. That this kind of submission was going to be the way of life for his disciples. And it's the only way of life, the only way of living that leads to real life. Here's what Jesus told this crowd of people with his closest disciples in the center. Chapter 8, verse 34, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, i got to stop there and tell you, this is, I want to be Jesus' follower. I really do. I I was just telling my son a story this week about church camp growing up, and and it it was just, my goodness, 27 years ago. Just 27 years ago when I, I said, God, I, I'm done trying to do this myself. I want to be your follower. And I was baptized there, and I, and I made this commitment that I wanted to dedicate my life to trying to follow Jesus. And so when I read the beginning of this sentence, if any of you wants to be my follower, I know Jesus is talking to me. 
And he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you have to give up your own way. You must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. And if you try to hang on to your life, if you try to keep your clutches, keep your claws in everything that matters the most to you, if you try to hang on to your life, Jesus says you'll lose it. Which doesn't make sense to us, but boy, we need to listen. Jesus continued and said, but if, if you give up your life for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, you'll actually save your life. The, the math doesn't seem to work for our feeble minds, right? If you give up your life, you'll actually save your life, he says. And then verse 36, he asks this profound question that ought to just resonate with us and make us reflect all week long. He says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? What do you benefit? If you hold on to all of the temporal, temporary things that seem to matter so much to you or seem to matter to somebody else or somebody told you is supposed to matter, what, will it do for, what good will it do for you if you hold on to all of that stuff but you lose the one thing that matters the most? Now, this passage is obviously challenging, and it's possible that you could misread this passage and you could use this passage to convince yourself that Jesus was encouraging all of his followers to go and try to be martyrs for the faith. You could misread and misunderstand the intent of this passage and believe that Jesus is actually sending all of his partners to, or all of his disciples and followers to go out and look for a way to get killed. But that's not what any of Jesus' disciples who heard this teaching and digested this teaching, it's not what any of them set out to do. In fact, I think what Jesus is calling his followers in this passage to do is even harder than that. Because Jesus is calling his followers 2,000 years ago and even today. Jesus is calling his followers to the ongoing decision to relinquish control of our lives and entrust ourselves to God's protection and plan for us. Jesus is calling his followers to let go. Jesus was sharing with his followers a cosmic secret. And Mark was good enough to preserve these words so that 2,000 years later we could be in on the secret. And the secret is this. Jesus didn't want his disciples to lose their lives. But he wanted his disciples to give up control of their lives so that their lives could be saved. Jesus was not looking for people who had a death wish. Jesus was not trying to encourage people to lose their life. He was trying to encourage people to give up control of their lives so that he could save their lives. And that sounds confusing, and it sounds convoluted at first glance, but if you think deeper about it, you can come to understand that Jesus is diagnosing our real, actual problem Jesus is telling us in these two verses that it's our control hunger. It's our need to be in charge that we truly need to be liberated from. 
It's our control freak tendency that's really enslaving us, that's really got our hearts captured, that's really driving our decisions. Jesus is telling us that it's our need to be in charge that we really need to be saved from. Our addiction to authority, our addiction to control is embedded so deep that Jesus knows we will always struggle in our relationships. We'll always struggle in our faithfulness to God until we decide to truly give up control to Jesus and his leadership. You know, there was a popular song as a decade and a half ago, I guess, popular country song called Jesus Take the Wheel. Many of you have heard it. It told a story, you know, this sad story about a young mom who lost control of her car and she cried out to Jesus to save her as the car was spinning out. And once the car came to a stop and she was safe and she was able to reflect and catch her breath, she, she decided that her experience on the highway was actually meant to be a metaphor for something bigger and that she needed to let Jesus take the proverbial wheel of her entire life because she wasn't capable of handling things on her own. Now, I got to tell you, you can find a lot of terrible and tangled theology in country music, but this song was on the right track in a lot of ways because without using that S word that we're so afraid of, without using the word explicitly, this song was talking about submission. It was talking about letting go. It was talking about releasing our grip on the steering wheel of our life so that Jesus could take us where Jesus wants us to go. And this is the secret that Jesus was talking about. Jesus knew, and Jesus was telling his disciples that submission comes before resurrection. Jesus was trying to let us know that resurrection is the result of a life lived in submission to God's will. This is what disciples are supposed to do. This is who disciples are supposed to be. Disciples are supposed to let Jesus lead, supposed to let Jesus drive, supposed to let Jesus take control. But the great temptation, the tragic, typical, common pitfall, Here's what we'll do. We'll tell Jesus, Jesus, I want you to be in control, but I reserve the right to use this brake pedal over here on the passenger side. This is what we do. I mean, you're laughing because you can think of your own life like you've had this conversation, right? I mean, who was it? I, will do, I would do anything for love, but God, I won't do that. I mean, we reserve the right to push the brake pedal over here on the passenger side. Jesus, take the wheel, but I'm going to ride here where these brakes are. And that brake pedal is the hardest thing to give up. That brake pedal is the hardest thing to let go of, but the only way we can do it, the only way we can truly let Jesus have control, the only way we can truly let Jesus have the, the wheel and let, it, and let Jesus take us where Jesus wants us to go is if we intentionally practice the discipline of submission. The only way this happens is if we make a decision, a daily decision, that we're going to practice the discipline of submission. 
Richard Foster is one of my favorite authors. He's written extensively about the spiritual disciplines that draw us closer to God, and he says this. He says, submission relieves us of the burden of needing to get our own way. Who would want to do that? That sounds crazy. That sounds terrible. But if Jesus is to be believed, if we believe that Jesus is who Jesus said he was, and if we believe that Jesus knows what Jesus is talking about, then this has to be true. Because Jesus says that self-denial and submission are the only paths to true life. Jesus says the only way to save your life is to let go of your life. Jesus says the only way that you'll live is by dying to yourself. And the spiritual truth is that our need to call our own shots, our need to plan our own future and create our own destiny stands squarely in the way of seeing what God is doing and what God has in store for us. You will never see what God wants to do with your life and you'll never know where God wants to take you if you pump the brakes every time God tries to get the car moving. You'll never know. You'll never see. And all the while, you'll be wondering to yourself, where's God? Is God even active? Is God even involved? Does God even care? It doesn't feel like we're going anyplace in this spiritual journey. And all that means that if you want to see what God's up to and if you want to see what God has planned, you've got to get to work at relinquishing control. It may be the most difficult, ongoing challenge of the Christian life, but it's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. It's what Jesus says a disciple's time is spent doing, giving up control, relinquishing, releasing the grasp on control of our life and allowing Jesus to have his way. Of course, part of the reason this is so challenging for us, part of the reason this is so difficult is because we're so good at compartmentalizing our lives, right? I mean, we invite and we offer the steering wheel to Jesus in one area of our lives, but then we stay in the driver's seat in some other area of our lives, and we do all of that because we're afraid. We do all of that because of fear. We're afraid of what we might lose. What is Jesus not going to allow me to hold on to? What is Jesus not going to continue to provide? What is Jesus going to ask and require of me? What do I stand to not gain if I let Jesus do what Jesus wants to do? That's the question that nags in our, in our soul. That's the question we ask ourselves in the dark, you know staring at the ceiling, wondering about what we're going to do with the rest of our future. That's the question that's, that gnaws at us. Like, if I, really, if I really allow myself to surrender my future and my plans and my will to God, what's it going to cost me? That's the question that nags at us. And Jesus has this question to ask in return. He says, what, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? <laughs> Jesus is saying, you do the math. What do you gain? If everything that you dreamed of, everything that you planned, everything that you think you wanted and that seemed so important comes true and comes your way, but in the end you lose what's most important, 
Jesus says, what do you gain? What do you benefit? And it's gonna be hard. But Jesus says, if you wanna be my follower, here's what it looks like. There was another author who lived 100 years ago in Britain, G.K. Chesterton. You've heard that name probably. A very devoted disciple of Jesus. And he, he shared this quote. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. He says, what God is calling us to do, it's not that people have tried it and gone all the way in and surrendered themselves and then found out that God was lying. So that's not the case at all. He said, the reality is that people looked at it, listened to what it was asking, came to realize that it was asking them to give up control of their own lives and said, now that sounds too hard. I'm not trying that, just in case it doesn't pay off. And this is kind of our human struggle. This is our common wrestling, is that the life of faith while Jesus has paved the way and invited us and shown us what it looks like, the life of faith still requires us to make a challenging, difficult, painful decision every day. It's a decision that says, God, I can't do this. God, I don't know what I'm doing. God, I recognize that if I continue to steer my own life, I'm going to mess this up. I'm going to run myself off in a ditch. I'm going to spin myself out. And so, God, for today, you take the wheel. And then tomorrow, I'm going to try to wake up and say the same thing. God, you take the wheel. God, you be in charge. God, you make the decisions. You plan the route. God, you take the wheel. I submit myself and my life to your authority and the beauty of it all the beauty of the whole story the part that makes the story so compelling is that Jesus went first in all of this big wrestling all of this question about discipline and submission and all the challenges and all the unknown Jesus went first out of anybody in all of world history, Jesus said, I will put your needs ahead of mine. I will put your comfort ahead of mine. I will put your interests ahead of mine. I will put your life as more, count it more important than my own. Jesus went first. Jesus isn't asking you to do something that Jesus hadn't already done. Jesus is a really good leader like that. Jesus went first. And so today he's asking us to take inventory of our lives and to say, which part of your life isn't surrendered yet? Which aspect of your life, which department of your life it's the one that you're still holding on to and saying, I, I'm not sure I can give that up. What is it that when Jesus asks you to do it, you say, oh, surely he couldn't mean that. 
because chances are that's what he means. Jesus is asking you to give up control. Jesus is asking you to trust him. 